Tim. We enjoyed, uh, Carol and I enjoyed meeting Tim and Yali at uh, MOP. How many of you know what MOP is? Not MOPs, MOP. <laughs> MOPs was Mothers of Preschool Children. No, this is Missionary Orientation Program, which happens, maybe some of you will be coming this year, even in June. It happens every year up in Greenwood Hills, and it's a week of intense training and just exposing uh, people to methods, the challenge of missionary work, and uh, it was a great time. But loved uh, Tim's playing guitar, singing around the campfire in the last night there. Thank you for the special music, too. Uh, lighting, Lord, lighting a fire in our hearts and following him to essential themes if we're going to be used of him. I want to begin with uh, just a little story from Genesis 16. You know the story of, of Abraham, a trust, like a totally a key figure in Scripture because God came to him, chapter 12, and said, Abraham, Abram at that time, says, I want to make of you a great nation. I want to bless you. And if you'll obey my voice and follow me, I'll, make of, I'll bless you and I'll make you a blessing. I'll make you into a great nation. And, of course, we know that it was the nation God chose through which he would give the prophets, the Scriptures, and the Savior, the Messiah himself. And Abraham did obey the voice of the Lord. He trusted him. He believed God, and that faith was counted to him for righteousness. But then sometimes doubt comes in, you know. And uh, they got tired of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And so they, in chapter 16, we see them trying to help out God a little bit. And Sarai, Abram's wife, comes up with a great idea. Why don't you take my handmaid, Hagar, to wife, sleep with her, have a child, and then, hey, we'll help God fulfill his promise that way. God didn't need their help. But, you know, God is sovereign, isn't he? He's overall. And what happened was Hagar conceives, and then she begins to despise her mistress, Sarai. And so there's this incredible tension between Sarai and Hagar. And in verse, uh, what is it, uh, eight, 6, we read that Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. But, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the story goes on, but I just want us to notice the two attitudes here. Sarai versus the angel of the Lord. Sarai deals harshly with her, pushes her away, and Hagar runs. The Lord comes graciously seeking after, after Hagar and shows her kindness and grace and asks her two questions, two great questions that everybody on planet Earth should be able to answer. Unfortunately, most people can only answer the first one. Uh, where have you come from? Even that, if you go back to the origins, most people can't answer that, at least not in our country. They suggest slime or monkeys, but um, where you, where'd you come from and where are you going? And then she, she gives, or the angel gives uh, Hagar advice to go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, we're going to see Islam means submission and Muslim is one who submits. But it's really hard for Muslims to submit to God's plan, which came through the Jewish race. Uh, we, the story goes on here. And we see the Lord graciously speaking to Hagar. And Hagar, uh, she says in verse 13, you are the God of seeing. 
Truly, I hear I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called uh, Bir Lahoroi, and so, which means uh, the well of the living one who sees me. But 2,000 years later, the Lord himself would come to another well, wouldn't he? And he would pursue a, a woman there at the well who needed the Savior. And uh, he would tell her, too, that salvation is of the Jews. Even though that wasn't pleasant to her ears, he said, you know, God's plan has come through this nation of, of Israel. And God has chosen the weak and foolish things to accomplish his plan. And, you know, it's really hard for Muslims today to submit to God's plan because God did choose that nation to bring to us the prophets, the scriptures, and the Savior himself. And so just uh, some thoughts here. You know, I, I have up on the, the uh, screen there uh, the phrase from verse 12 where it says that he, Ishmael, shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and every ha- everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kindred, his kinsmen. And today that's, that's being fulfilled. The Arab race is, is a hostile race in relation to much of the rest of the world. And yet that's maybe what we see. We see Islam. We see, we see Muslims. But God sees people. He saw Hagar there. And later in chapter 21, he would see, uh, he would see Ishmael too. And they're both crying. And the Lord tells them that, you know, my promise is going to come through Isaac, through the nation of Israel. But but I'm going to make of, of Ishmael too a great nation, and I care about him. And, and we see Ishmael crying, and we, see, we hear Hagar crying. And, and the Lord hears the voice. This is in chapter 21. She hears the voice of the boy, and he calls out, and he, he provides, again, a well of water for them. And it says God was with the boy when he grew up. He goes down to Egypt, and he marries an Egyptian girl. But God was with him. God cared about him. He heard the cries of Hagar and Ishmael. Do we hear the cries of Muslims tonight? Do we hear the cries? Do we care? Do we have the Lord's heart? Are we more like Sarai? Push them away. We don't need them. They don't need to be a part of our world. Well, they are a part of it. And and God has a plan, too, for Muslims, that he wants them to be delivered from the uh, lie into which they've been born. Well, let's go on. We can uh, go ahead and turn the lights off here. We can turn on our switch here. Okay. This is actually a group in, in uh, Egypt praying. I want to give some definitions here just real quickly. We're going to cover a lot of ground. By the way, I have way more material than we can possibly cover in our time together here today and tomorrow. But we're just going to do what we can, right, and challenge our hearts, and we'll see how the Lord leads. Islam means submission. Uh, Muslim means one who submits. But I think the distinction we need to keep in mind is that Islam is a system. It's an anti-gospel system, and it's a system that raises itself up against the gospel. And Muslim is one who's trapped, a soul, a precious soul for whom Christ died, trapped in that system. Uh, Allah, okay, it means the God in Arabic. It has a twofold usage. Don't think that it's intrinsically a bad word or something. It's not. It's the generic term for God in Arabic. Okay? If you have an Arabic Bible, you read, For Allah so loved the world. That's the word in Arabic. Uh, and uh, in the beginning, Allah created the heavens and the earth. That's the word for God. Um, but that's not God's name, is it? Uh, in other words, God in English isn't, G-O-D isn't God's name. He's called Yahweh. He's, he has many names in Scripture. But my name isn't man. I've got a name, Paul Bramson. Right? We have our names. But I'm a man. God is God. He's the supreme being. And basically what Muhammad did, he came along and he said, okay, here's the confession of faith. There is no God but 
Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. And, and so he's basically making the term Allah into the personal name of God, which it never was. And the Allah of Islam is not the true and living God because God doesn't deny himself. He doesn't come along after he sent many prophets over many centuries and say, I'm going to send a savior who's going to give himself as a ransom for many. He's going to become the sacrifice. He's going to be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. He'll be called the son of God. And then come 600 years later after it's accomplished and say, oh, didn't really mean that. God has no son and Jesus didn't die on the cross. So obviously the, the God of Islam is not the true and living God. It's an impersonation on the part of Satan to deceive people. Muhammad was uh, born in 570 after years after Christ, and uh, he was an orphan boy. At age 25, he married a 40-year-old girl, Khadija. Uh, she was a wealthy caravan owner, and he began to receive revelations as he was out in the desert. He had a lot of times after he got married because his financial problems were taken care of. And for 23 years, he re would receive revelations out in the desert. At first, he thought it was demons that were haunting him, but he became convinced of his own prophethood. And eventually, uh, of course, he would recite what he heard out there in the uh, desert to those who would listen to him. Uh, the very word Quran means recitation, and that's their, their book. And it wasn't until 15 years after Muhammad's death, 632, that uh, his disciples would write, began to compile into a book the things that he had said. They had written them down on bones, on parchments, on animal skins, or whatever they had before that time. There's a lot. Of course, we could do a whole conference just on that, but we won't. Uh, the hadith uh, are, are the sayings of Muhammad written down by his wives and acquaintances after his death. There are thousands and thousands of pages in the hadith and just all these, uh, these stories, and some of them don't make Muhammad look very good. But even the most authoritative, the most accepted Hadith, hadith of, uh, of Muslims would be Hadith Bukhari, and uh, and there are their horrific stories about the violence Muhammad used in torturing people in order to get from them what he wanted, and so this is uh, the one that they follow, and usually we don't rise above the one we follow. Again, just to review here, Islam submission and surrender. It's a system devised to keep people from the gospel. And Muslim is one who submits or one who surrenders, and they are the souls for whom Christ died trapped in that system. Don't forget that distinction, please. Please. Uh, we have no place in our lives for Islam, uh, It's as you'll see, but we must have a place in our lives for Muslims. Islam is a threefold system. It's a religious system, it's a cultural system, and it's a political system. Let's just look at that uh, rather quickly. Uh, in the religious system, five pillars, the declaration, I already told you, uh, one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Uh, to become a Muslim, you have to confess that. And of course, in so doing, you're saying that Jesus was only a prophet. Ritual prayers facing towards the birthplace of Muhammad, which was Mecca in Arabia. Praying in Arabic five times a day. If you're a Shiite, you pray three times a day. Interestingly, in their Quran, there are a lot of things that aren't said, like it doesn't tell them how many times to pray. That comes from the Hadith. And the fact that they wash ritually before they pray and how they do that, again, that's not in the Quran either. There's so much they do that really isn't in their book. Uh, meritorious alms. They are to give alms to the poor, and it's all part of gaining their salvation in their thinking. And then there's the annual fast of Ramadan, which we've probably all heard of, where they fast from sunrise to sunset, uh, not eating or drinking, 
And then in the evenings, of course, it's feasting time. But again, it's all part of gaining their salvation. And then the pilgrimage to Mecca, if they can afford it, if they're able-bodied, they should at least once in their lifetime make a pilgrimage to the birthplace of their prophet. And there they go through a series of rituals, and they will include them visiting Medina, which is about a two-hour bus ride to the north, and that's where they visit the tomb of their prophet. So their prophet is buried. He didn't rise again. A cultural system. Secondly, religious system, a cultural system. Uh, Islam is an imposed culture. It affects their language, you know, because they pray in Arabic and so much of their phraseology, even if they're not Arabic-speaking. There are only 200 million Arabic speakers in the world, okay? There are 1.3 billion Muslims. So, you know, here here, uh, you've got Muslims having that imposed on them to use this in their prayer language. The way they dress, uh, their diet... Uh, economics, uh, laws, politics, even their architecture would be basically 7th century Arabic uh, architecture that they're following. It's a group identity. Uh, Basically, the idea of conform or you're out, you know, conform or die, that uh, you have to conform to what the group is doing, and that's why it's so difficult for a Muslim to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, Imagine if, for instance, to become a Christian, you had to renounce your American citizenship. Say, to be a Christian, you announce, you renounce that. Hopefully we'd all be willing to do that if that were, were, were required. But uh, that's what it feels like for a Muslim to come to Christ. They're, de- they're denying everything they are and everything that their heritage. And then there's the honor and shame thing uh, in, in Islam that honor is so, is so important. And they don't think a lot about guilt guilt of sin, but they think about the shame that is being caught, being seen, being being humbled before others. And so to reject the religion of your upbringing is to bring great shame to your family and to lose honor. If you think of a Muslim like this, you know, that they've got their life and Islam's a little part of it, then your thinking is incorrect. Uh, it'd be more like this, that Islam is what dominates every part of their life. Their life is is enveloped in that. And, of course, that shouldn't be too strange to us as Christians, should it? We should have Christ and our little word life under that. Is that how it is for us? He is our life. But he takes us down another path. He gives us rest. He gives us peace. He gives us purpose for uh, glorifying him and bringing joy and love and peace into the lives of others. I mentioned, I think we were just in Kenya. We just came, we got in Tuesday afternoon. Uh, so it's been a, a whirlwind going from Senegal to Kenya for two weeks doing some teaching. Yes, we we didn't have much time to do the tours thing, but the last morning we drove through a park and we saw a lot of animals. But we uh, were privileged to teach in three locations, including in this big Anglican church, uh, bringing together a lot of uh, pastors and uh, just workers people from churches that are concerned about reaching their Muslim neighbors. Islam is growing in, in, um, in Kenya. And so we, we had the opportunity to teach there. Now, you see a, a lady walking down the aisle there at one point of the presentation was uh, to, to, to let them see uh, maybe something into the thinking of a Muslim woman. And so there she was up front, and she read to us um, the testimony of a Muslim woman and the struggles that they face, just incredible, uh, as now their the husband's wanting to take another wife. And, um, you know, they're, they've been told, well, if you do certain incantations or you, you know, put, put two drops of your urine in his coffee and his tea in the morning, and then, and then that'll help him to love you again. 
And, uh, I mean, you just imagine all the things that they're doing to try to get their love of their husband back. And then they're, they're doing their prayers, and yet they have no guarantee of anything. In fact, they hear that um, they're hearing that uh, only one in a thousand women will make it into paradise. I mean, Muhammad had a really low opinion of women, and he said, I reckon that uh, most of hell will be populated by women. Um, and so she's wondering, you know, I'm doing all these things, but, I mean, what kind of a chance do I even have to make it into paradise, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Well, by the way, that woman happened to be my wife that did that. <laughs> that's Carol behind there. But uh, I'll tell you what, that's the reality. Here's a, a, a woman just walking down the road there uh, in um, Mombasa, the south coast of uh, Kenya. And ladies are facing that all the time. That's the, the social, cultural side of Islam. It's also a political system. Indeed, we're, we hear a lot about that, don't we? Sharia, simply the word in Arabic for law. It's the law of Islam. And uh, just a few, I put up a few Quranic references there, but just think about what it says about women. For example, a, a husband can beat his wife, chapter 4, verse 33. Uh, he can beat his wife. If, if your wife is not submissive to you, forbid her from your bed. If she still doesn't submit, then beat her. That's chapter 4, verse 34. Uh, in the reference I put up for Surah 2 or chapter 2 would have to do with laws of divorce and inheritance and all. And a woman only gets half as much inheritance as a man. Uh, in, a, in a court of law, it takes two women to equal one man for a testimony. And if a husband wants to divorce her, all he has to do is say three times, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And it's over. Three times, divorced. That's it. Theft, get your hand cut off. Adultery, a hundred lashes. It says for both the man and the woman, but actually in practice, it's generally the woman that gets a hundred lashes and the man gets off with very little punishment. That's the general pattern. The woman gets blamed. Jihad. It's the word in Arabic for struggle. We often say holy war. Uh, Muslims often get upset when we say it's holy war. Okay, so it's struggle, whatever. But uh, the idea is it's struggle to, um, to further Islam at three levels, individual, community, and global. Individual would be a Muslim saying, okay, I'm going to better my own life. You know, I wanna, I'm struggling to overcome bad things in my life and do what's good, you know. Community is to better your community, whatever that means. You know, it could be for more justice or uh, however they interpret that. But global is the one that uh, we, we sense and we hear most about, and that is really anything um, to further Islam on the global scale. And there's another word here in Arabic that could be helpful to us. It's taqiyya, which means deception. And the Quran states that it's taqiyya, this, this law of deception is, is uh, permitted in war. You can even make a treaty with uh, your enemy and you can break it. You don't have to keep your treaties in war. So that means that uh, treaties don't mean much, right, in that context. Uh, how about to one's wife? You can, you can deceive your own wife, too. That's, that's okay. And also, if you want to reconcile two uh, parties, two people or groups that were having problems, then you can use deception if that will help. Even the Wolof people amongst whom we work in Senegal, uh, they have a proverb that says, uh, a lie that, that heals is better than the truth that hurts. And so the idea is deception, lying is perfectly acceptable if, if good can come out of it. And uh, so what we see happening on a, a global scale, I want to just develop a little bit more here. Here's one verse from the Quran, chapter 9, Surah 9, verse 29. Fight against such of those to whom the scriptures were given, that's Christians and Jews, as believe neither in God nor the last day, who do not forbid what God and his apostle, Muhammad, have forbidden, and do not embrace the true faith, Islam, 
until they pay tribute. It's a tax called Jesus tax. It's levied on non-Muslims until they pay tribute out of hand and are utterly subdued. And so just that one verse really encapsulates the doctrine of global jihad. There's another word in Arabic. It's a zimis. Uh, it would be, uh, it means the subjective one, the subjected ones. You notice the last phrase in the uh, verse above, they'd be utterly subdued. In other words, those who don't submit to Islam, uh, they must be utterly subdued. And they're called the Zimis. They're the second-class citizens, and they would have three choices. Jews and Christians had three choices. Pagans had two choices. Pagans would either convert or die. Jews and Christians, because they believed in God, they had three choices. They either convert to Islam or they submit to being a second-class citizen, the Zimis. They'll pay a special tax levied on non-Muslims. They will uh, feel themselves to be utterly subdued. And if they refuse that, then they also must be put to death. And so that's how things were in Muhammad's day. And that is, uh, if you have Islam at its uh, full value, you might say, then that is what it looks like. With all this, maybe we ask ourselves the questions, why the growth in Islam? You know, if if that's Islam, I mean, why would anybody even want it? Well, there are a lot of reasons why Islam is growing. It's said to be the fastest growing religion in the world. Here's the reason. This is why it's the fastest growing. It's biological. It's simply Muslims have big families. They can have up to four wives, and the average uh, Muslim family has about eight children. So if you look at American average family or Europe, you know, we're one to two children. Uh, there's no way that with that kind of pattern that if the Lord be not come that, uh, you know, uh, that Islam is not going to overtake uh, the rest of the population unless the Lord intervenes in some way. So uh, fleshly appeal is another one. A lot of people like a religion that has lists. They like lists. They like to do something. And Islam will certainly give you the list. Islam, Muslims pride themselves in the fact that we have instructions for every detail of life. Well, I tell them we do too, but it's based on the law of love. It's because we love our Lord so much that it affects every aspect of our lives, you know, because he first loved us. But uh, their concept, too, of paradise, I mean, now this doesn't help women come into Islam at all. If a woman considers the Islamic concept of paradise, I don't see why in the world she would even consider turning to Islam because it's really a man's realm. It's a place of central delights for man, you know, unlimited perpetual virgins, however that works. Um, and, uh, you know, green embroidered couches with fruit in easy distance of reaching distance and uh, chicken and meat and rivers of wine. And it's just a paradise that's would appeal to the flesh. Syncretism, that is the mixing together of different belief systems, is also uh, makes something that Islam can be very acceptable. You can hang on to your animistic beliefs. You can hang on to a lot of old beliefs and embrace Islam. Of course, the one thing you can't do is remain true to Christ, since he says, I am the way, not a way. Marriage. A lot of single women are converting to uh, Islam through marrying a charming Middle Eastern man, uh, a Muslim man. I've even had uh, women write to us as a result of the article online saying, Ooh, is it really true that, that a, a Muslim man can beat his wife if she doesn't submit? And said, Yes, that's what the book says. And he, Right now he might just be bringing you roses and chocolate, but somewhere down the road, he can go to the other route where he would be sanctioned by his local mosque, by the local Muslims that he could beat you and there's nothing you can do about it. There's the club mentality. 
Okay, this is interesting for the African-American population. I, I have some African-American friends, including one who was in prison uh, seven times before he became a believer. But uh, they've, they've worked amongst Muslims, and they'll all tell me the same thing. They say, for our African-American brothers, Islam is a revolving door. A lot of them convert to Islam, but they don't stay in it. Well, someone told me he thinks the average time to hang in with Islam is three years. In other words, they get tired of it. But it's cool, you know, you join the, the fraternity. Uh, you're in prison and you join, you get protection. You join the, 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 um, the brotherhood, you know, in, in the inner city. There are a lot of programs they have. And so it's really the club mentality of uh, just converting. The, the brother I know who was in prison seven times before he came to Christ, he says, many of my, my friends converted to Islam. He says, not one of them converted because for reasons of, of faith. It was all because of this club mentality, join the club, you know. The brotherhood. Never could they say, you know what? I've been I've been researching the Quran for a year, and I've been studying against the Bible, and I'm convinced the Quran is the truth, not the Bible. No, not never that. And so it's it's that kind of thing. Just it's it's helpful to to see that. And then might and money, you know, just using force and using money to uh, attract people. You know, giving people jobs. This is happening in Kenya, where we just came from. Ten percent Islam right now, but they keep building mosques. And it's like we build it and they will come. And they give people jobs and they, you know, seek to arrange things for them. A lot of money pouring in from Saudi Arabia. While we were there, they had this incredible debate, you know, attacking the Quran, or the, the Bible rather. And, and so there's a lot of finances coming in. I like this um, one Muslim background believer said, you know, the fact that Islam uses, uh, you know, money to, to further their cause in that kind of a way, you know, paying people to become Muslim, uh, just shows their powerlessness, you know, doesn't bother me. Just shows how weak they really are. They have nothing to offer. And then Islamic missions. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of money being invested just in, like I said, building mosques. And they will do things like saying, okay, uh, here's a university. We'll build you. You need, a, you need another classroom? We'll build it for you. We've got the money. Just let us have one little corner here for a, a, re, a Quranic reading room. And so that's how they, they infiltrate in that way. But no, Muslims cannot evangelize. I uh, was just in a meeting in Kenya and heard a, a preacher talk about how Muslims are evangelizing here. And Well, they can't. They can't evangelize. They can do missions. They can do dawah, as they call it. That's the Arabic word for missions. They can't evangelize. They don't have an evangel. They have no good news. No good news. So they can spread their system. They can spread their beliefs, but they have no good news since there's no way, uh, there's no salvation in Islam. The only thing the Quran tells you, Muhammad told his troops that if you die in holy war, as you're fighting for the cause of Islam, you'll go straight to paradise. You know that, that line. Islam's anti-gospel. All right. John 3.16. Anybody know a greater verse in all of Scripture than John 3.16? I mean, it's wonderful. You know, the Gospel of John was written for unbelievers primarily, and John 3.16 is at the core of it. And it just nails the Gospel for God so loved the world that he gave his his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise God. Well, how does a Muslim hear that verse? Let's work through it. What does a Muslim see in John 3.16? You know, unless they've, unless they've begun to understand God's plan and been taught, beginning with Moses, beginning laying some foundations in the scriptures of the prophets, which we're going to talk more about tomorrow. But um, how do they hear John 3.16? For God. Okay, their concept of God is he's, he's distant, he's unknowable, he's unpredictable. He can say one thing today, he can change his word and do something different tomorrow. Can't really 
trust God. So love the world. Wait a minute. He only cares about Muslims. The word love isn't even found that very often in the Quran, and it's quite a different kind of love. God is never said to be love, as he is in the Bible. So he doesn't love the world. He hates the unbeliever. That he gave his one and only son. Now, that's an Arabic word, astaghfirullah, which means, it's a, it's a formula, it means God forgive you for this blasphemy. I've heard it many times. If, I hear, if, if I'm speaking to someone, I say, speak of the Son of God, they'll, they'll say that under their breath or out loud, astaghfirullah. It's like, may, may God forgive you, may God forgive me for even hearing such, a, such words as that God has a son. The Quran says over and over, God has no son. He, does, he wasn't begotten. He doesn't beget. And they're thinking, they're thinking metaphysical relationship. They're thinking that you're saying God took a wife and had a son, which, of course, uh, I've never met a Christian who thinks that, nor, of course, does the Bible teach that. I'll say to Muslims, uh, you know, if, if you come to my country, we might call you a son of Senegal. Uh, but does that mean that we're saying Senegal took a wife and had a son? Of course not. It means you came from Senegal. They know that. They use that term, son of Senegal, son of America, or whatever. But it means you're from there. And they know that they know that Jesus uh, came from God and that he had no earthly father. I told you the Quran says he was born of a virgin. So, But that's what they hear when you say son of God is just blasphemy. And furthermore, Jesus wasn't crucified. The Quran says in chapter 4, verse 156, it says, No, they did not kill him. They did not crucify him. But it was made to appear to them that it was so. But the Islamic concept is that someone who looked like Jesus was crucified on the cross in his place. And God just took Jesus up to heaven without him dying. And one day he's going to come back and he's going to um, marry two wives and tell everybody they should have been Muslim, break all the crosses, kill all the pigs, and then die and be buried next to Muhammad. That's what Muslims believe about our Lord. That whoever believes in him, now here a Muslim can get rather upset. What do you mean believe in him? We believe in Jesus. Why don't you believe in Muhammad, the last and greatest of the prophets? We believe in all the prophets. You are the ones who have the problem. You don't believe in Muhammad. Just last uh, year when we were in Senegal, the, ma- the imam in our local mosque before a group of about ten men told me, he says, your, your, your religion is zero because you don't believe in the last of the prophets. And yet they're thinking we believe in Je- they believe in Jesus. Shall not perish. Now they might say, oh, you Christians, you are so arrogant. I, I, we know you talk about, you know you're going to go to heaven when you die and all this, but only Allah knows. You can't know that. But have everlasting life. And there again, what's their concept of everlasting life? Well, this paradise, a, man, a sensual garden of male delight. I, I've often thought and said that, you know, if there was no other criteria on which to choose, which is the truth? This or that? The Quran or the Bible? All you have to do is look at the concept of paradise. I mean, this is completely sensual, fleshly, uh, and this is all about God. Revelation 21:22. Everything is made in, in the heavenly Jerusalem to reflect God's glory. Even the streets are of transparent gold, you know. Everything reflects his glory. It's all about God in the Lamb in the, the, who, who redeemed us and has called the people to himself. So there's the Islamic view of John 3:16. Now, a Muslim has an incredible dilemma. Here's the problem. Their book tells them in dozens of places that they must accept the previous prophets and the previous scriptures. If we had time, I'd read you some. 
But uh, it just here's here's the basic gist of it. It it says that the the Torah of Moses, the Psalms of David, and the Gospel of Jesus are from God. They're given for light and direction. They're revelations that are true, and they must be accepted. And it says in chapter 40 that if you don't accept the revelations, plural, that we we reveal to you by our prophets, plural, you'll be dragged in hell with chains around your neck. That's in the Quran. That's just a little sample. Another verse, 1094, says that uh, if you're in doubt about what we've revealed to you, then ask the people of the book who received the scriptures that were given before you. (laughs) So Muslims are counseled by their own book to come to us and ask for advice if if they have any questions. I mean, there there are those kind of things in the Quran. And nowhere does the Quran say that the Bible is corrupted. Well, now get this. What are you going to say to your Muslim friend? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I just, basically what I just said here. Why do Muslims say this? Because the Quran commands them to accept the Torah, Psalms, and Gospel. And so if the Bible is trustworthy, then the Quran is not, because they contradict each other. Now this is lo- simple logic as we, as we put it out here tonight, but... Muslims don't generally see that logic. They're not seeing that. But they know that they have a problem. They have to say that the Bible is corrupted because it says a lot of things that are very different from the Quran. And then their own book tells them to believe these scriptures of the Bible. So what about this question of corruption? And you could ask your Muslim friend, do you think the Bible was corrupted before or after the Quran was, was written? And if they're to say before, well... Muslims must accept the previous scriptures, right? So if they say it was corrupted before the Quran was given, before Muhammad's time, then why did Muhammad say in the Quran, why does the Quran say that these previous scriptures were given for light and direction, that, they, that you have to accept them? I mean, <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? Okay, and if they were to say, no, it was after Muhammad's time that someone came along and corrupted the Bible, well... That would be ridiculous. First of all, the Bible is already widespread and translated into so many languages. But we have the Dead Sea Scrolls that go to the time before Christ for the Old Testament. We have manuscripts for the New Testament, entire manuscripts that date back to 325, which means that's hundreds of years before Muhammad was even born. Our Bibles that we hold in our hands today are translated off manuscripts that predate Muhammad's time by hundreds of years, which means this Bible, different Nice, fresh English translation, yes, but this Bible that I have in my hand today is the same Bible that existed in the time of Muhammad, which means the Bible hasn't been changed, and the Quran says what it says. Muslims must accept this previous scriptures. They have a problem. Another question you could ask your Muslim friend is, do you think God is able to protect his word? I mean, that's a simpler one. The other is a little bit technical. And But, you know, why would God allow men to corrupt the divine scriptures i mean god revealed his story and truth to us over over many thousands uh, hundreds of years by many prophets so that we would have a foundation for what we believe and we can go back and see that all the prophets have a consistent message and we'll talk more about that tomorrow and and i found most muslims on this will say you know yes no god would preserve his word you're right and of course the argument comes from their mosques every day Allahu Akbar. God is greater. God is greater. Right? Well, isn't he great enough to protect his word? I'm going to close here, and we're going to pick up here tomorrow. But um, Islam is what it is. Okay? You know, 
I've given you a little introduction to it tonight, but I've known brothers that they do a week-long seminar on Islam, you know, and, and each one to his own calling. But, um, you know, you can't change that. You're not going to change that. We don't want to. Islam's what it is. But Muslims are our neighbors and friends. And that's who we care about, and that's who we're praying for tonight as we go our separate ways. And I'd like just to uh, close with prayer, and then um, maybe there's a question or two that you'd like to ask just before we, we uh, close out the evening. Father, I just want to thank you for this time you've allowed us together tonight. And we're just in an amazing place here to think that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness. Whatever that looked like for each one of us, uh, it is a bad place to be. And we're, we've been translated into the kingdom of light. And we, we think of our, our Muslim uh, people around the world, Lord, in these countries that are being troubled right now and uh, in the countries that maybe we're not hearing of, and Indonesia and Iran and uh, India and, and all these North African nations and West African nations in the Middle East. And, Lord, we just lift before you these, uh, these dear people as they're in the midst of so much strife and, and turmoil right now. We think of the people of Libya. And, uh, Lord, right now they're focused on, on being freed from tyranny of, of men who have just exploited them. But, Lord, behind that there's a greater tyranny. It's the tyranny of, of the lie of Islam. It's the tyranny of, of a, a self-proclaimed prophet who contradicted your plan, your message, so many uh, centuries ago. And, Lord, we just pray that you will open the eyes of multitudes. Uh, we think of the 34-plus thousand who have downloaded one God, one message and into their computers. And, Lord, I just pray that you'll prompt them to go to their computers and to begin reading and begin seeing the contradictions and to begin seeing the plan that you have, that they, too, can know the God who so loved them and who provided a Savior for them. And so, Lord, we just uh, ask that you'll teach each one of us through this uh, weekend together that you'll burden our hearts, that you'll show us how we can pray, how we can give, and how we can go, how we can make a difference, whether it's just going to a neighbor, a colleague at work, perhaps that's under the influence of Islam. Lord, we just pray that you will guide us and help us to have an increased burden and a clearer vision for reaching out to this uh, one-fifth of the world's population. Thank you again for this time together tonight. We give you all the glory with thanksgiving in our wonderful Savior's name. Amen.